Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the death of political civility. Where in the world is Justin Trudeau? And Patrick Moore on the issues the environmentalists should be talking about. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Going to be speaking later on in the program with Patrick Moore, one of the co-founders of Greenpeace Canada, now one of the great men speaking truth to the climate alarmists on issues of CO2, on issues of the government policies that they tend to shoehorn in based on what is not really a scientific but rather a political argument on the environment. We'll sit down with Patrick Moore later on in the program. But I want to begin the show by talking about this video that has gone absolutely viral for all the wrong reasons of a man accosting a staffer at Catherine McKenna's office in Ottawa, her riding office of Ottawa Centre, and doing so in a way that is not constructive, is not polite. I don't think it is illegal, but certainly it's not something that we should be striving towards in the political discourse. Now, uh, with apologies to my videographer and editor, but I'm going to have to play this clip for you here, bleeped, which I know is not fun to do, but there's a lot of profanity in there, and I want to make sure that we are not actually, uh, you know, terrifying the uh, the poor uh, virgin ears of our listeners here. But let's roll this clip, and then we'll we'll get get into why there's something so wrong with this. Hello, how are you today? How are you? Can I speak with Catherine? No, sorry. Our office is open to the public. Why is that? Okay, I got a tiny bit of an issue. Can you help me? She says she's spending $5 billion, $10 billion a year on infrastructure. The PBO office, Yves Giroux, says she's only spending $5 billion a year. What's up with that? I don't go to work every day and bust my ass for this to steal our money. You're all scumbags. You're all pieces of trash you f-ing scumbags you're all kid f-ing pieces of trash just like Justin Trudeau raping kids we charity sorry kids in Africa this money isn't for you this money for Justin Trudeau and his family they need it a lot more than you they need a bigger yacht they need a bigger watch they need five watches that are 20 grand the f-ing scumbag pieces of shit. I hope you all burn in f-ing hell you're all gonna get what you deserve you f-ing traitors Scumbag pieces of Look, he calls her the almighty word that you should never, ever refer to a female by. Lots of profanity. And more importantly, he takes out his anger on a woman who works in his office, or rather in Catherine McKenna's office, who is not the problem here. Any anger you have is not directed to low-level constituency office staffers, but it's to Catherine McKenna. Now, I want to jump around to a couple of different aspects of this because first off I'm a believer in free speech that means the right to speak freely that means the right to swear the right to be angry the right to feel just absolutely horrific things or horrible things about people about events whatever you want you have a right to do that I am of the mind that if you are in politics even if you are a political staffer but especially if you're a politician you have to have a thick skin you have to have a tough exterior not because everything that's going to be thrown at you is right or moral or just but just because that's the nature of the beast you have to be able to take the punches and not in a literal sense but the verbal punches 
and most people in politics on all sides are. However, there is no excuse, regardless of your discontent with government, your discontent with Catherine McKenna, and your anger, to lash out in a way that this person did. This is something that was deliberate. The guy went out of his way to go to the office, rang the little intercom thing, berated the staffer, didn't just say McKenna this, McKenna this, you people, all of you, traitors, terrible words. Obviously, it was very threatening. Thankfully, the woman did the right thing. She just didn't engage, went back, locked the door, and that was that. But there's something very wrong. And even if, even if there is no moral wrong with this in your view, surely you can agree that it isn't helping anyone. This is not bringing anyone around to your cause. This is not making it so that people are more likely to say, oh, you know what? You, you raised some really good points. I'm actually on uh, you know, your team now and instead of Team McKenna. So while I understand a lot of the anger... That is no excuse for the way it was expressed. And all of us, liberal, conservative, NDP, Bloc, Quebecois, Green, PPC, all of us need to strive to a level of political civility that is getting further and further away. And before anyone says, oh, but what about this side? And what about, I, I don't care. I don't care. I, I don't want the whataboutism where, oh, but this liberal said that, so we're, we're going to, you know, respond. No. We can all do better, and leading by example is a darn good way and a darn good place to start if, in your view, the other side is not doing it. And, and this is not just a, a social media problem. You know, if someone just, you know, says Catherine McKenna this, that on Twitter, she can block them, ignore them, do whatever. If someone sends an email, a letter, same sort of thing. It's very different if someone is literally there with a phone in your face, which, by the way, shows that it was deliberate. The person shoves the phone in the face of the staffer and, you know, then makes the decision to upload it to the Internet. So that's the other part is that there wasn't even, a, you know what, I think I might have overstepped here. So even if you agree with everything that was said, surely you can agree this is not the way you make a point. And this is not helping anyone. And more importantly, it actually turns people away and off of you because now Catherine McKenna is a victim in the sense that she is the one that more people are siding with. Now, she's put out a statement that actually uh, indicates that whole tough skin approach I mentioned. She said Thursday's incident was not a one-off or an isolated occurrence. My family, my staff, and I deal with abusive behavior on a regular basis. That is unacceptable, and I am committed to working across party lines to make it stop. Uh, the statement goes on and, and says, this is, uh, or these people just want attention. The only attention they should get is from law enforcement. The proper authorities have been notified. Now, whether this is or should be a police matter is a different story altogether. And, and I, I tend to believe that for anything speech-related, there has to be a fairly high bar. What I don't at all buy into is police responding by saying this is going to be a hate crime investigation. Uh, the Ottawa police have said their hate crimes unit is the one that's now looking after this. I think that, again, there is a very high bar for hate crimes. I think legislating intent and emotion behind certain things is never a good idea. So I would say that there's definitely a, a case of, of the hand being overplayed here. But the interesting thing about this whole thing is that, you know, no one was hurt, no one was harmed, and we can be grateful for that. 
These are the types of situations that if someone responds the wrong way, it's easy to see it getting to the point of escalation. But rather than saying what Catherine McKenna did here, which is that, you know what, we need to work across party lines to ensure that we have respectful discourse, the liberals actually blamed this in a way on Pierre Polyev. And this is, again, talk about taking something that's bad that everyone agrees is bad and pushing just a couple of steps further and and blaming all conservatives for it based on on Pierre Polyev standing up as conservative finance critic. This is from a segment on CBC's Power in Politics in which uh, Liberal MP Adam Van Coverden apologized to all of the Dutch listeners if I butchered the last name, but I'm going just phonetically here and realizing that I've never actually heard his name said out loud. But Adam Van Coverden, who's somewhat of a, a star member of the Liberal Caucus, who says that Pierre Polyev questioning the government is what's responsible for this outburst at Catherine McKenna's office. I would just point out that the type of baseless allegations that Mr. Polyev keeps making about our government is one of the things that's fueling the type of action that we saw at Minister McKenna's office today. I would beg him to please provide like good, constructive criticism when necessary, but the baseless allegations, these assumptions and the rhetoric that there's always a scandal is, is one of the things that's fueling a lot of the difficulty uh, that, that people are experiencing. And I would just ask for more truth. Okay, I had to let Mr. Polyev respond to that. Mr. Polyev, go ahead. Well, that's disgusting. Our job is to hold this government to account. They shoveled a half a billion dollars to an organization that had paid the prime minister a half a prime minister's family a half million dollars and gave an illegal forty-one thousand dollar vacation to the finance minister. They then gave another contract to a company whose vice president is married to the chief of staff. This is the behavior of their government, and they can expect that our opposition is going to hold them to account for it, and we're not going to be intimidated into silence. Okay, we're... we're account is fine, but the baseless allegations and the speculation needs to stop. What is false that I said? Give me an example. You said maybe. You said maybe like four times. You said maybe this is true. Maybe it's a coincidence. Those are speculations, Mr. Polyev, and that's what's driving a lot of this. You can't name a single example of a false statement I've made because everything I've said is factual. And it's not hard to speculate, Adam. I accuse speculation. Baseless speculation. Well, I'm glad Pierre Polyev, in in true Pierre Polyev fashion, uh, decided to just stick that exactly where it needed to, which is, you know, just punt that ball right out of the court and say, you know, you're, you're... out to lunch if you think this is a, a conservative problem. But this is, again, that the challenge when you're talking about discourse is that to liberals saying that, uh, you know, Catherine McKenna is an effing C word is the same as saying, you know what, Justin Trudeau is behaving in a corrupt fashion. Like they view any criticism of them as being the same and as being offensive. And, and when the liberal government right now is so thin-skinned that it thinks everything is just a, an affront to their delicate sensibilities, it makes it very difficult to have that cross-party line approach to discourse that Catherine McKenna seemed to want. And by the way, this is coming at a time when, as uh, Mr. Polyev pointed out, nothing that he said was untrue. The liberals are doing exactly what it is they've been accused of doing. And Brian Lilly had a a great scoop in the Toronto Sun. Uh, He had done a lot of the legwork on on something that was circulating on Twitter. This week, Justin Trudeau's office had put out an itinerary saying he was in Ottawa for private meetings. And in actuality, he was at a cottage in Georgian Bay. And there was photo evidence of this. Now, 
they later corrected this in a, a subsequent itinerary that just said on August 11th he was in Ontario. So uh, they realized that they were, uh, you know, busted lying about where Justin Trudeau was when he was actually, you know, having a good time on vacation. Then they decided to just say he's somewhere in Ontario. So it's like, where in the world is uh, Carmen San Diego? Where in Ontario is Justin Trudeau? Except Carmen San Diego, I think, is actually getting things done when uh, when she's on the road, whereas Trudeau is just, you know, pretending to be doing meetings and actually uh, kayaking. So right now, all of the, the liberals that are having to defend Justin Trudeau uh, would, uh, according to Adam Van Coverden, uh, say that this is all just stoking uh, really nasty negativity to start asking questions, to hold the government to account, which is, by the way, inherent in the name of the conservatives in politics right now, the official opposition as in the party that is there to oppose the government and to hold the government to account. And incidentally, it doesn't seem like the conservatives are alone in being displeased with Justin Trudeau's government right now, uh, specifically Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who is perhaps not even respected within his own party right now. This is, I think, fantastic. And if you're, if you're not for Bill Morneau, it's terrible for him, but for, you know, everyone else in Canada, this is just great political theater right now. There have been some rumors that Bill Morneau was clashing with Justin Trudeau about how best to respond to the pandemic. And this uh, is something that the Globe and Mail uh, published a story saying may be uh, the case that Morneau is on his way out. Maybe he's not the right guy to uh, maintain the role of finance minister. Uh, this is the, the great story, though, uh, from Reuters. Trudeau's office asked whether he still had faith in Morneau, said it would respond later. <laughs> Morneau's office did not reply to a request for comment. So this is the phone call. Hey, uh, you know, Prime Minister's office, uh, Cameron or uh, Chantel, uh, we're asking you, does, does Justin Trudeau have faith in his finance minister, Bill Morneau? I'll call you back. That's basically what they're doing, or maybe it was even better. Maybe it was in an email. Oh, we'll have to get back to you on this one. So there isn't actually a, an answer that the Trudeau government can give right away as to whether they have confidence in their finance minister, which in and of itself shows a lack of confidence. The, the fact that they can't even answer without saying, we'll get back to you. And I read the whole story. It doesn't sound like they ever did get back to them. So maybe it was lost in the mail or whatever. Or maybe the message just didn't get to Trudeau and Georgian Bay. And it's entirely innocent that he was just, you know, out on uh, out on the Georgian Bay at the time with his kayak. He was uh, kayaking past. What is it they have? The grotto or uh, Indian Head Cove there and Beautiful part of Ontario, if you've never been. Uh, Justin Trudeau perhaps uh, was there and, and they couldn't uh, get to him to ask him, hey, in the middle of this pandemic, the middle of this crisis, the middle of this uh, economic situation that's causing millions of Canadians to be on unemployment, do you have confidence in your finance minister? Uh, and then he says, I, I can't hear you. I'll, I'll talk to you when I'm back to shore. That's basically what, what's happened here. And the part that I found so hilarious about this is like after going to a reporter and saying, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to you on that and then not getting back to that. So, so something that in and of itself they know is a vote of non-confidence, basically. The PMO then sends this absolutely glowing tribute to Bill Morneau out to at least some media. I, I know CBC's David Cochran got it. And that uh, note, I, I won't read the whole thing. Maybe I will. Since we formed government, Minister Morneau has worked relentlessly with all colleagues and closely with the Prime Minister to deliver critical support for Canadians to build a strong and resilient economy. 
In particular, Minister Morneau played a central role that saw Canada develop one of the best economies in the G7, a million new jobs over the first mandate. Okay, no, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Yada, 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 yada. Uh, goes on, then it talks about how his work continued throughout the pandemic with CERB and the wage subsidy and all of these other things. And then finally, of course, the Prime Minister has the full confidence in Minister Morneau and any statement to the contrary is false. The Prime Minister knows that Minister Morneau and the entire team of cabinet ministers will keep doing the work that Canadians rely on to get them through this pandemic. Now, I, I, I like that they say, well, of course he does, as though like the statements came from their non-statements. Like the, the statements to the contrary came because they didn't say anything. And uh, what's that old saying? That nature abhors a vacuum, so people fill it with whatever they can. So I wonder if, and this is purely speculative on my part, I wonder if they had to kind of negotiate with Morno behind the scenes on, are you going to play ball? Are you going to do what we want? Are you going to do X, Y, Z? Before reaching the conclusion that he has their full confidence or if this is literally just bumbling fools that you know can't figure out their left hand from their right hand and that's why this happens i mean what is that uh, you know that idea that you have to put forward always incompetence versus malice sometimes it's both with this government i honestly don't know uh, a lot of the times whether it's option a option b or a fusion version of, of it and option c but ultimately, I find this just, again, just terrible if you're Bill Morneau, but hilarious if you're uh, someone else, that they can't even figure out in due course whether they have confidence in the finance minister until they do. And then it's like, well, how could anyone think otherwise? Well, look in the mirror. So yes, the importance of having political discourse at its finest is there. We need civility. But to say that criticizing these liberals is in and of itself uncivil, give me a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to the show. You may remember a few months ago, I spoke with Patrick Moore, one of the founders of Greenpeace Canada, after he was summarily uninvited from giving a talk that the city of Regina was putting on at a conference, which now has had to be canceled altogether. So uh, the joke was on them. But Patrick Moore is a climate denier to the eyes of in the eyes of the climate alarmist. But in actuality, he's a scientist who speaks about a narrative that the mainstream media and the well-funded scientific community doesn't want to talk about by and large. So I actually caught up with Patrick Moore in Calgary a few weeks ago. He was speaking at the Freedom Talk conference, at which I was also an esteemed speaker, although not nearly as esteemed as Patrick Moore. And I was very gracious after we had spoken by phone a couple of months back that Patrick Moore was available to sit down in person. Now, he's supposed to be speaking at a rescheduled event that Ezra Levant over at our friends The Rebel have put on. Uh, we don't know if that's going to go ahead yet because it's scheduled for September, and, and obviously we're, we're getting close to there, and it's not clear what events are allowed or not allowed. So I, I don't know for sure if that event is going ahead, but uh, stay tuned, and uh, I'm sure Rebel will have the details out when they're available. Uh, but my interview with Patrick Moore. So you and I spoke last when you had been cancelled from speaking at an event in Regina, and of course the, the great irony is that the whole event had to be cancelled because of everything to do with the coronavirus. And, you know, one of the things that I, I found interesting is that your radical proposition that I guess makes you so cancelable in the eyes of people is that you believe that CO2 is a net positive, whereas the prevailing wisdom, and 
you know, take from that word what you will from all of the so-called experts is that CO2 is destroying the planet. And how is something so fundamentally at odds with what the, the main narrative we hear from the alarmists, how, how can you deviate so radically from that and still be in a minority? It's they who deviate. <laughs> how you can think the most important molecule for life, carbon dioxide, which is where all the carbon in all life comes from, and, and we are a carbon-based life form, uh, how you can think that could possibly be net negative is just beyond the pale. I mean, it's, it's basically throwing science and logic out the window altogether. The big talk we hear from a lot of the carbon tax proponents in, in Canada and other jurisdictions is that greenhouse gas emissions are the, the big enemy of, of everything and that you have to then, to deal with that, tax it to, to disincentivize production of it. CO2 gets lumped in very easily by a lot of these people with the other greenhouse gases that are supposedly so harmful. So do you think that it's just CO2 that needs to be isolated from that discussion, or do you think that by and large, on all of the things that we hear referred to as greenhouse gases, we need to rethink whether they're as negative as people are saying? Well, first, if there were no greenhouse gases, there'd be no life on the Earth. The greenhouse gas is water, of which is the most important one by far. So I don't think they're against water vapor. Last time I looked as it being some kind of poison, but water vapor and clouds and ice control the climate so much more than anything else. If it were not for the greenhouse gases, the Earth would be 33 Celsius colder, and life could not be here. So green, the greenhouse gases are necessary for life, and CO2 is necessary as a food for life. They're two completely different things. CO2 is also a greenhouse gas, as well as being the primary food for all life. But the, the, the most important point is there is no historical evidence that CO2 causes the temperature of the Earth to change in any way, none whatsoever. You can look at the historical evidence in the glacial periods, you can look at the historical evidence back 500 million years ago, and the ice ages, for example, when the Earth gets cold, have nothing to do with the CO2 levels. Sometimes there's an ice age when CO2 is very high, sometimes there's one when it's very low, and vice versa. Sometimes they go in completely opposite directions for tens of millions of years. While CO2 goes up, temperature goes down, and while CO2 goes down, then temperature goes up. This is in the historical record. The only evidence that CO2 causes warming is in computer models that are built to say it does. People don't realize that computer models are not a crystal ball that can predict the future. There is no such thing as a crystal ball. Is it a, is a mythical object like reading your palm, right, and, and trying to tell the future by reading your palm. A computer model, you put your assumptions in it, and what your assumptions are come out the other end of it. It's based on what you assumed was the correct number. And they just assume that CO2 will cause warming, so they put that in the computer, and of course the computer shows warming. But just because CO2 is going up now and temperature is going up now in this modern warm period does not mean there is a cause-effect relationship between the two. And the only times there seems to be a cause-effect relationship between the two is when temperature drives CO2, not the other way around. When the oceans warm, CO2 comes out of it. When the oceans cool, CO2 goes into it changing the amount of atmosphere there is, CO2 there is in the atmosphere. But it isn't what's changing the temperature. The temperature is being changed on cycles that are with the Milankovitch cycle, which is solar cycles. Solar and Earth tilt cycles. It's, it's right 
right there for anyone to see. But these people don't want to know anything that happened before 1850. Like for them, that's when the life, be life began and the earth began or whatever. That's the only years they're really interested in. They deny that the medieval warm period existed. They deny that the Roman warm period existed, but they did exist. And they just ignore the, the, the Holocene. This is the interglacial is called the Holocene right now. It's 10,000, 11,000 years long. The first half of it was warmer than it is now. That was called the Holocene climatic optimum. And everybody who studies climate knows that's there, that, that it was warmer then. The Sahara was actually green. There were, there were goat and cattle herders all across the whole Sierra, Sahara up until about 6,000 years ago when it suddenly broke, the Sahara dried out, and since then, it's been getting colder. But it's been getting colder, but we're in a little warm blip now. But, but before that, it was the Little Ice Age. Then it was here, then it was there, then it was here, then it was there, then it was here, then it was there. So that's going backwards. It's been cooling for 6,000 years. And that's all in the Greenland ice cores. Anybody can see it. So your position is not that the warming isn't happening, which is, I think, another position that you hear from some of your colleagues that are classed as deniers by, by people. You're saying that the warming is not anthropogenic, it's not man-made, and, and that it's also not all that atypical. It certainly is not atypical at all. Even during this last 10,000 years, there's been periods of warming and cooling that have been more rapid than this one degree in 300 years. That's all it is, you know. It's one degree Celsius in 300 years since the peak of the Little Ice Age 1700 years, in 1700, 300 years ago. That, that is what has happened, slight warming. We would have expected that because it was in the same cycle as from the Roman warm period into the Dark Ages cold period into the medieval warm period a thousand years ago into the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age peaked in 1700 and now we're in the modern warm period. So we would have been expecting a warm, warming. Those other cycles had nothing to do with CO2 because it stayed the same the whole time, 280 ppm. We've raised it up to 415 and it hasn't changed the rate of warming at all. The, it, the rate of warming is one degree per 300 years, which is like the, the United Nations is predicting amounts up to five times or more than that to occur. But again, those are all based on computer models, not on real measurements. You can't measure the future yet. That's the problem. And people are acting as though you can know what the temperature is going to be in 80 years from now. Well, and also with great precision about, you know, we've all heard the cataclysmic uh, predictions that we've got 12 years left, basically, and, and all of these sorts of things. But it's not just that things are, are getting worse that these people say. It's that they know with certainty. And the flip side, though, I think is almost more dangerous, which is, well, it's a possibility, so shouldn't we prepare for it? And then they use that as a justification for all sorts of dangerous economic policies and other public policies. So yeah, well, they, we should prepare for an invasion by Martians. <laughs> well, but, but to your point that you can't predict the future, how do you push back against these people that say it's a possibility? Because that's almost more dangerous than the people that are claiming it's a certainty, the ones that say, well, it may or may not happen, but these are all the things we should do anyway. Well, you don't spend half of civilization's wealth on something that might not be true. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to wait before you do that. We didn't, we didn't prepare for the virus before it happened. I mean, we have, sure, we have health agencies and stuff, but you can't do anything about something until it happens. And nothing is happening right now. Mm -hmm. The weather is happening, just like it always has. So people are trying to make out as if there's unusual things happening now. There, there aren't. Even the United Nations IPCC says there is no increase in drought, flooding, wildfires, 
hurricanes or tornadoes. It's normal. Every, it, it's, and some of them are actually declining. And in, in a warming world, we would actually expect hurricanes to decline because they depend on the difference in temperature between tropical air and temperate air in the, in the north. It's where those air masses meet. That's why you don't have hurricanes on the equator because the air is all hot there. Mm. But where the, where the cold air and the warm air meet is where these cyclones are formed. And that should go down as the temperature, when the Earth warms, it warms inadvertently towards the poles. It doesn't really change at the equator any significant amount. And that, that's how they can get away with, say, Canada, saying Canada is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world. Because the whole northern hemisphere is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world, maybe a degree and a half instead of 0.5 at the equator. You know, it, 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 it's always that way when the Earth warms and cools. It does so inadvertently towards the poles. That's why they're so cold and the equator is still so warm. But when the Earth warms into the greenhouse ages, which are when the, when the Earth is, is warm everywhere, there, are, there were forests on, on Canada's tropical... Uh, there were forests, tropical forests at one time, on Canada's Arctic islands. And then as the world cooled over the last 50,000 years, we're at the tail end of a 50,000-year cooling... I, I've got to get my numbers right. <laughs> we're at the tail end of a 50-million-year cooling period today. 50 million years ago was the Eocene thermal maximum, and it has been cooling in fits and starts over that whole 50 million period until we get to the, the, the glaciation we're in now, the Pleistocene Ice Age. We are still in the Pleistocene Ice Age. It is not over. People think the last glaciation was the end of the, uh, of the Ice Age. That was just one of about 45 glaciations that have come and gone during the Pleistocene Ice Age where the temperature has sunk to lower than it has been in the last 250 million years since the last ice age, which was the Karoo, which ended 250 million years ago after a hundred million years. That ice age lasted a hundred million years. We know that, it's true. You never hear these people talking about what the real climate change that's happened on this earth from ice age to greenhouse age back to ice age again over a 350 million year period. Those are the real changes in climate. What we're in now is nothing. This is just normal weather in a Holocene interglacial period, of which there have been 45. And they've, they've all been on the, on the cycles of the Earth's tilt or the cycles of the Earth's orbit. We, we know that for sure. You said earlier on that all of the climate researchers know this stuff. They all know about the cycles. They know about the history. They know about the trajectories you've described here. Are they just ideologues? They're so hell-bent on this alarmist narrative that uh, they're kind of overlooking things that are fully within the realm of their research and all of that. Or is it just about the money? And I've heard that argument that, you know, there's no grant funding for proving a negative, but there's lots for, for proving that it's a problem. Is it just about the money? Or do you think there is a, an ideological thing that's sweeping? Well, there is ideology involved. N nobody would say the world is going to end in 12 years if it wasn't kind of like a religious cult, right? It isn't going... What does the world ending look like anyways? Is it going to blow up? Is it melting? Is it uh, all the water dries up? No, it's nothing like that's going to happen. And it's just silly, actually. It's childish to say the world is going to end in 12 years it, or even 1,200 years. I mean, it is not going to end anytime soon. It's been here for 4.5 billion years and life started 3.5 billion years ago. And 500 million years ago, modern life emerged and we are now at the highest biodiversity the planet has ever been. 
biodiversity has simply increased all every time, even when there's an extinction, it comes back more biodiverse than it was before. And National Geographic published that graph in, in 1999, February 1999. They published the graph of global biodiversity, and it shows it higher now than it's ever been in the history of life. And we're told that half the species are going extinct any day now. Well, we hear this about wildfires as well, where every time there's a wildfire, it always comes back with a lot more vibrance. They say, yes. yes. <laughs> the wildfires in the U.S. were so much more extensive in, the, in around 1900 to 1930. That's when people started managing for wildfire prevention. And the reason they've been rising in the last 20 years is because urban greens have got control over the management of rural forests. Hmm. And the foresters are no longer managing them. And also because they're building their houses in coniferous forests on either side, you know, 120-foot trees of needle trees, which are pitchy. And when their crowns catch fire, that's the end of it. The wind just takes them 100 miles an hour, and nothing can outrun that. And all their houses burn down. That's just stupid planning. Uh, but, the, the, you know, the, the fact is, in the United States, where there's a lot of public forest and a lot of private forest, the private forests almost never burn. The public forests burn because they're mismanaged. So we're told by... A lot of the, again, I keep going back to so-called experts. I don't know what else we can describe them as that's uh, not terribly unflattering, that everything is a symptom of climate change. Wildfires are climate change, cold weather, warm weather, droughts, everything is, is climate change. And how do you push back against that narrative when it, it seems like there's not a single piece of evidence that would ever refute what they believe? Because they view everything, they weave it into that overarching narrative. So I know you've been very frustrated by this because you've been talking about these things for, for decades now. How do you think we need to? The climate has hardly changed. They're talking about the future that's going to be dramatic changes in the climate. You know, climate, the, the official definition of climate is the average weather over the last 30 years. So it's a roll, a moving average, right? Mm -hmm. And if you take the climate of this earth all it's done for the last 300 years is get a little bit warmer. There, there, you know, and a lot less people are freezing to death than did back then. 20 times as many people die from the cold as die from the warmth. The only climate refugees in this world are people flying south from the winters <laughs> in the north. Yeah, no one from Florida is spending their summers in Canada or their winters in Canada. No, they're not. Well, they might come here in the summer because it can long, long nights and long days and sunny weather. It's a nice time to come to Canada. That's more when most people do come to Canada. But they don't come here to the, in the winter except the people who come skiing. They'll come here in the winter because that's fun to do in the snow and they might not have any snow in their country. But the bulk of people who are going to another place are people going from cold places to warm places. When you're a climate refugee yourself, because you moved from B.C. to Mexico, did you not? Well, we have a place there, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so <laughs> and so we you, go there if, in the winter. But if you were from Mexico, you probably wouldn't have a winter home in, you know, northern Alberta or something. No, <laughs> not likely. And why then do we hear this rhetoric from, you know, the Liberal government in Canada, for example, about climate refugees from Africa? I mean, again, I have no frame of reference, having never been there, not being an expert on this, but, but you know, we're told the portrait is a very grim one, that you've got communities that can't grow food, that don't have water, all because of climate change. It's all lies. They're coming here because they want to come to a better country that's got a higher standard of living and better education, better health care and all that. One of the reasons the people in Africa are still in such a, a, a dire strait is we won't let them use fossil fuels to make electricity. We, we, we won't help them. That's we're, why we're China... We're imposing that, our environmental virtue signaling on 
African nation. Yes. Meanwhile, we use a lot more fossil fuels than they do. But, and, but that is why China is expanding its influence so much into Africa and South America, is because they will, they will build the coal plants and then take 10% interest on the revenue from them, just like any business would do. But then the people have electricity and can build their, their, their society up. Uh, there's also still, of course, a lot of tribalism in Africa. It's mm -hmm. nascent there. And it, it's, it's a, it's a, I've been through lots of Af sub-Saharan Africa, and it's pretty tough in parts. Uh, I think we should be doing more to encourage them to develop a decent energy infrastructure, because that is definitely the basis of a large part of our standard of living, is the fact that we have electricity and fuel, the energy to run our system with. And I think... You know, a lot of the climate alarmists, the real climate alarmists like Al Gore, who isn't a scientist, and, and, and the people, there's so many of them that aren't scientists who are the leaders of the alarmism. Then the scientists who are alarmists are like Michael Mann. He is actually a complete fraud. I mean, he denies the history of science. He projects these horrible future scenarios. Uh, and he basically is... is assassinates the character of everybody around him. I mean, if you, if you, and Google's in on it, and all, Facebook's in on it, Twitter's in on it. They, if you Google me, you will find that all the character assassination websites come first. Not what I've done in my life, not who I am or, you know, all of the things. all of the denunciations from Greenpeace. Yes, and it's and just character are, assassination. Yes. It, it, it's, it's that I'm in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry and I work for polluting industries. Like, they use the term polluting industry. They use, actually, they say the word industry like it's a swear word, like mm -hmm. he works for industry. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, when you talk about investment in Africa and infrastructure and anywhere in the world, it's, it's very difficult when the alarmists view industry itself as the enemy. Yes. They view true progress as being the enemy. Yeah, and, and actually, where are things made mm -hmm. by industry? Right. And science used to be actually more done by the private sector. And when the private sector invests in science, they actually expect something useful might come out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, something useful does come out of the government funded science. Fear, <laughs> fear of the future and fear of the climate. So that helps the politicians. And I, one, one of my hypotheses, and I'm, I'm writing a book that will include I, I, this. I, I think this is a really important insight in many ways in that Nearly all the scare stories today are about things that are invisible, like CO2. Like you can't point over there and say, look what the CO2 is doing over there. So, and, or so remote that nobody can go and observe them for themselves. So because you can't observe it directly yourself, which is the first basis of science is observation, mm -hmm. seeing something happen and saying, oh, maybe this is causing this, and then doing an experiment to verify whether or not there is a cause-effect relationship there, and then giving it out to be replicated by independent people, other people than you. So then pretty soon you've got a hypothesis that's turning into a theory. And, but you can't do that with things that are invisible very easily. So if, something, if you're basing your story on something that is invisible, you depend on the activists, the media, the politicians, and the scientists, all of whom have lots of skin in that game, you depend on them to tell you what's really happening. So when they tell you that CO2 is causing this or that or the other, you can't see it. You have to believe them. And then you expand that to the media and, as you were saying, the tech companies. Yes, and the tech companies and the politicians who want scare stories that they can tell their, their voters they're going to save them and their children from. You know, you're driving down 
the highway in your SUV, you're, you're afraid you're killing your children and your grandchildren, right? So you get guilty about that. And then you send a big check to Greenpeace or one of these other so-called charities that are going to save the world for you. That's how that works. They're, they are very good at getting their hands in other people's pockets and extracting money from them, like up to half a billion dollars going into Greenpeace and these other groups. So you still do this. You still talk about these issues. You still write about them. Is there still a bit of hope or optimism that you have? Well, the reason I'm writing the book I'm writing now is so that it's there as a record of what I believed at this time in history. And I think it will bear out. As a matter of fact, I know it will. Uh, the, the scare, for example, about GMOs, genetically modified foods, yeah. have they ever shown you what it is that's in there that is harmful? No. Under a microscope? I'm told I have to be against them, but yes. no one's told me why. Well, that's because it's invisible, mm -hmm. right? Radiation is invisible. So they can make up all kinds of scare stories about it. Those are the, and, and pesticide residues in food are invisible. So that gives the organic people, which in, in the sense of food, the word organic is a strictly a marketing term. It has no scientific basis to it whatsoever. Mm. Organic in chemistry means the chemistry of carbon, which is all food pretty much, because all the food is from living yes. things that are based, in, based on carbon. So all our food is organic in that sense, except uh, maybe Salt. Beyond, beyond meat burgers. <laughs> well, they're organic, yeah, no matter what they've got in them. Uh, the, the other things, though, are almost all caused by CO2. They say that the coral reefs are dying from CO2. How many people can go and see if, the, if, the, if CO2 is killing the coral reefs? First, you can't see the CO2. Secondly, the coral reefs are underwater, right? And not that many people go there. So the scientists who are studying the coral reefs and making the headlines, 93% of the coral reefs are dying, 90 3% of the coral reefs are nearly dead. 93% of the coral reefs are terminal. None of those things are dead, right? Dying, nearly dead, and terminal are not dead, right? So they can get away with saying that because if someone goes there and say, well, they're not dead, they can say, well, we didn't really say they were dead. <laughs> we said they were almost there. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, my, my, uh, my wife and I moved into a house and we inherited a garden, not having any ability to do any gardening. And there are lots of flowers there that don't look all that good, but that does not mean that the garden is dead. It doesn't mean it's over. There's a cycle to these things. Yes. They grow, they go away. Everything dies. Mm -hmm. That's what people don't seem to get. There's nothing that doesn't die, doesn't have an end of life, right? And then a new one is born, hopefully, usually. And coral reefs are no different. Parts of them die all the time. And sometimes hurricanes smash them up. Sometimes boats run into them and, and, and damage them. Sometimes people overfish them. And so there, there are no, it's not that there's no issues with reefs, but reefs are thriving all around the world where reefs can grow. And the proof of, of this thing about them, them dying be, because of the seas are too hot, the richest coral reefs in the world with the most reef fish too, the most biodiversity of corals and reef fish is in the warmest oceans of the world, which is the in Indonesian archipelago sea, which is a shallow sea. It's, it's it, year round, for year round, it's the warmest ocean in the world and it has the highest biodiversity. It is actually a kind of sanctuary as the world has cooled over the last 50 million years, the range of corals has shrunk into a much smaller space near the equator than it was when the world was hot. That's just, so really, yes, it's cold that has reduced the area of, of coral, not heat. Hmm. 
Well, glad we can have you here to break through a lot of the noise on this. We've talked about the sea, the air, the land. I think we've pretty much covered all the bases. We'll get you on space next time. Patrick Moore, thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Always fun to uh, sit down with, with people like Patrick. And incidentally, I was glad uh, especially to be at Freedom Talk because I don't know if you've noticed, but all of the conferences now are going virtual. So I've received all these like emails from invitations of, oh, oh, come to this year's virtual conference and come to this virtual conference, this virtual meeting. And, and I don't like conferences in general. The only thing that makes them good is talking to people, the socializing and networking and sometimes the travel to a place. So the idea of like an online conference, which is basically just like staring at boring seminars for eight hours on Zoom doesn't strike me as all that enjoyable. So I hope we get to have some in-person conferences again so we can have more conversations like that one with Patrick Moore. Uh, We have a really special bonus episode coming up on Friday here on The Andrew Lawton Show. That's all I'm going to give you for now. If it doesn't happen, then we'll never speak of it again because something fell through. But I I think it's going to happen and I think it's going to be a good one. And we'll be back with the regularly scheduled programming next week. My thanks to all of you who tuned in We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.